Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. This is a radio show of the Catholic Association where we bring you witty and charming, in depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, on Sirius XM Channel 130, and of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to your favorite podcast platform. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm excited to have journalist and author Sorab Amari with me. He writes for the New York Post and formerly the Wall Street Journal. You may remember his conversion memoir, From Fire by Water, which tells his moving journey from atheism to a vibrant Catholic faith. Today, we'll be asking him about his take on the protests, the riots, which he experienced up close in Manhattan, and how people of good faith can meet the present moment in all of its subtleties. But first, let's welcome to the program Mary Hassan. She's the Kate O'Byrne Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and an old friend of Conversations with Consequences. Hello, Mary. Hello, Gracie. Wonderful to be with you again. Oh, well, we always like to hear your insights on important things because they're always very wise. And I specifically really wanted to ask you about how you are experiencing the current moment, current crisis in America, which is no longer COVID. That seems to have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And now is these demonstrations and riots and everything that coming along with them across the United States. Yeah, I'll tell you, the crisis seems to be shifting almost by the week because you're right, we had COVID and then we had the horrible death of, of George Floyd and everyone, you know, the outpourings of, of sorrow. And then you had the riots and then now we're seeing something even further with the not just continued lawlessness, but a culture that wants to shut down any opposing views and is trying to, you know, it's a mob mentality of forcing everyone to think the same way. In other words, this this crisis has mushroomed. And so in thinking about it, Gracie, I was thinking, you know, what's the challenge for Catholics? Uh, On on the one hand, as far as just the, the terrible death of, of George Floyd, that's that's easy in one sense. We recognize injustice and you condemn it and you want justice for for him and, and for the perpetrators and things. And then, then you step back a little bit and you say, okay, what, what are the conditions that gave rise to this? We need to address this. But we're called not to get caught up in what I see as sort of an, an unthinking attitude of where we just allow empathy to drive us into the uh, the arms of the mob you know of just mm-hmm. slogans and then an agenda without stopping to think and think of the present moment and the challenges from a catholic perspective a distinctly catholic perspective and what do you think a catholic perspective what makes it distinctive from just the, the perspective of people who are of good faith and and wants what's right and what's just for individuals and for our country I, you start with the dignity of the person and so clearly racism is an offense against that and it's it is deeply wrong and so we can agree on that but then again we have to continue thinking and evaluating. You know, the compendium of of Catholic social teaching talks about anthropology as being the lens through which we view culture. So the Catholic anthropology begins with that dignity of the person. And so you look at at the cultural challenges here, but we have to think critically. So what's happening? What are the solutions being proposed? And that's where I think the the temptation of the culture at large is to go from that empathy and that recognition that there's there's some injustice here to just being swept up by by the slogans 
And so you have, you know, Black Lives Matter. Well, okay, Black Lives do matter. But from the slogan, you go to an agenda and everyone's now supposed to embrace this movement of Black Lives Matter, which at its core is fundamentally anti-life. It supports abortion. It partners with Planned Parenthood. It is advocating the um, dismantling of the traditional family. Mm-hmm. It promotes you know, the whole LGBTQ agenda. So that's where the Catholic perspective has to come in and say, so wait a minute, I, if I see a problem, great, step back, but don't get swept up in what's being proposed by ideologues as the only solution that we can do better. And, and it seems that the, some of the solutions that are being proposed by the mob will be even greater infringements on human dignity in greater numbers and, and, and affect more people than the very real fact that sometimes police actions are wrong and police are not trained properly or following the right mm-hmm. ethical rules. Right. And, and so that, again, comes back to that idea of the Catholic perspective. You know, it begins with the dignity of the person, but it's about justice. It's not about power and oppression. And, and that's the other lens that's being kind of superimposed here. So everything is being viewed as, as labeling some people as oppressors simply by the color of your skin and other people as victims or the oppressed, the marginalized, and therefore the ones who need to climb into the seat of of power. And that's not a Catholic framing of the issue. Everyone has equal dignity. And the question is, what's just? Giving to each is due. Mm -hmm. Every person is entitled to fairness under the law. But everyone also has freedom to speak. Everyone, we need to recognize and, and give room for people to advocate different solutions to a problem instead of trying to mandate one thing. In other words, just... I think for Catholics, a good place to start is just stepping back and being a prayerful, discerning Catholic, thinking things through with the mind of the church. Human dignity comes first, and then the lens is justice. It's not power and oppression. And then stepping back or personalizing it still further, okay, what am I called to do? And I was thinking of this last night when I was speaking to a young woman who, because of the the riots, and, and she's, you know, completely non-racist, not, she's just got a heart of gold, pure Christian, but she was saying it moved her to volunteer to be a mentor at a program that was nearby that that specifically worked with minority kids in the inner city. And so that's a concrete action that she was moved to take because as she looked at injustice, she said, what can I do to make things better? And so I think that's the question for each one of us, you know, given our call, it's very easy to, to walk through the streets and to chant a slogan. That's that's not the Catholic call. Sometimes we're called to witness like we, you know, we certainly do at, at different times. But the bigger question is, what am I called to do to address this injustice? Do I see it in my circles in my life? Or is there a way I can make a contribution? Again, seeking justice, not this power and oppression lens. Oh, I love that, Mary, because it brings it home. And in a way that if each of us attends to this personally, there is hope for reconciliation and moving forward and together, no, as brothers and sisters and all of us mm-hmm. children of God. Right, right. So thank you very much, Mary, for joining us. I hope that we'll have you back soon on Conversations with Consequences. Thank you very much. And now we turn to New York Post op-ed editor Sarab Amari, who is going to tell us his own tale of surviving an evening of Manhattan riots as protests and violence continue across the nation in the wake of the ugly death of George Floyd. 
Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Sarab. Thanks for having me. So, Sarab, we are living through very strange times in our country. You in New York City, I'm in Miami. We both had riots and protesting here and there. And, mm -hmm. of course, everybody, it seems like every corner of the nation has been affected. And, as everyone knows, the spark was the cruel death of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of the police. It, it was captured on video and spread like wildfire. And then mm -hmm. peaceful protests, which I object to. I objected on the basis of my, my medical <laughs> my medical knowledge. I didn't think it was quite responsible to collect in mass. And then opportunists like Antifa and all the petty criminals took advantage of the situation. So all that to say that you had a close-up view of actual rioting in Manhattan and you wrote about it in the New York Post. It sounded terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was Monday, June 1st, and there was a curfew imposed for 11 o'clock. I use scare quotes as I say curfew because it was such a toothless curfew, as was we would soon learn. But I was curious beforehand to see what was happening on the streets. So I live in Midtown East, if folks know where Manhattan is or how it's situated. And so I was just a storm's throw away from um, Lexington Avenue and let's say the mid 50s. And I just went out there and I saw kind of mass ongoing looting in a very casual way, like sort of groups of mostly young men, but a few young women would, you know, had all, the stores were already shattered and they would just sort of walk through the glass and take whatever they wanted and some of them had brought carry-ons to to you know carry all the loot <laughs> and they were walking in further downtown and so it was just sort of they were using lexington going downtown and as they saw stores they sort of took stuff and the astonishing thing was that there were police officers present on the block they had, they had closed off let's say 55th avenue westbound sorry 55th street westbound and the, the riot police situated and they as the looting was going on but the nypd wasn't responding i think because they had bigger fish to fry elsewhere or because they f were worried that they would get overwhelmed as had happened elsewhere and so this was a very kind of scene of lawlessness and disorder very disturbing but i thought look at least they won't come to my block because my block is not an avenue with like sexy cool stores it's just like a residential block with a with a restaurant and a salon on it that's about it so i went back into my apartment and we heard gunshots and it's not something we're used to hearing so I think maybe, maybe people might think New York, you're hearing gunshots all the time. But in fact, that's not the case, as you know. Um, so I, again, went downstairs to see what's happening. But this time, my doorman said, you know, unless you absolutely need to go out, I suggest you don't. And sure enough, as I looked through the glass door of our entrance, I saw that those same groups were now going up and down our, our block, which I thought was so out of the way and kind of not a cool block that they wouldn't even come here. But they were going back and forth, back and forth. And so I decided to stay with my doorman to make a column out of it to see what transpired that night. Actually, it's two, two doormen. One, his shift was ending at midnight. The other was just starting. And sort of, I document this in a piece for the New York Post of their nervousness. You know, they're actually both people of color. They're both working class people. And yet they're totally afraid of... Uh, what what could happen? Like you know, um, what defense do they have? You know, as you know, there's no, they can't carry handguns. They can't. So if one of these groups decided to come in and smash up the lobby, what would they do? And what are the chances of them then deciding to go up the elevator? Was the thought that went through my head as a father and husband. And so I got. It was a, it was a chilling night, and at various points, 
some of these groups did pause, like they were looking through the lobby to see if it's worth it. And thankfully, you know, event, almost every time they would look because I don't have an opulent lobby, they just sort of thought, eh, forget this. And they would move on. You know, <laughs> I, read, moment, yeah. I read your article and weren't the people who live in the apartment building, some of them armed and ready to stand at the door of the elevator and keep... No, no one's armed in New York. Really? <laughs> <laughs> You it's know, very I hard to get. A, because... It's very hard to get a license. You know, here it's a, it's a it's an ordeal. I think you can get a rifle or a shotgun, um, but even that is much more arduous uh, than it, it is in many other states. Now, I'm not a, I'm not like a Second Amendment extremist or anything. I'm not an absolutist. But when I see things like this, boy, do I wish I I lived in a red state where I could defend myself if need be. Yes, it made me think of that because I just imagine my husband standing in the, in, a, in our building lobby and thinking of us upstairs, me and the children, um, mm -hmm. and not having anything at hand to, to mm -hmm. defend us. I wonder, mm -hmm. I guess the Second Amendment will always be with us now that we've seen what, what can happen when the police yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think this stuff, uh, the, the, the gun reform stuff is out the window for a generation. That, that's how it seems to me. So, yeah. so Rob, we have to uh, evaluate what's happening, starting with the protests, but always in the face of the, in the background of the pandemic, which mm -hmm. has magically disappeared off the front page, as you've mm -hmm. noticed, as everyone has mm -hmm. noticed. And so, for instance, there's a level of social irresponsibility in congregating by the thousands, just as our country is trying to emerge from lockdown. And as a physician, mm -hmm. I've been amazed that we're not, um, as a people, basically, calling for these demonstrations to stop in the name of public safety. And quite the contrary, people are egging them on. Even people, um, I'm sad to say, people in the medical profession, but also government officials who somehow mm -hmm. are writing them a carte blanche, right? To say, go ahead mm -hmm. and, and protest. Do you, do you see that that same way too? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I am not a public health expert. Uh, I do try to follow this stuff because I'm the operator of the New York Post and you want to see which position we should take you know, as, as things develop. Um, I haven't taken a strong position on the lockdowns uh, uh, when they, at least when they first were imposed as a response to the pandemic and we were told we needed to flatten the curve uh, uh, of, of new patients, new hospitalizations and, and deaths. So we, we flattened the curves. And so I was already kind of, after the, flat, the curve were flattened, I had questions about the rationality of continuing to lock down and whether or not um, it was it was prudent in light of the costs it was imposing in terms of job losses and, sure. and isolation, psychological damage, suicides, and so forth. But okay, you know, we, we all are tolerating this sort of phased reopening, which is very slow in New York. And then the protests happened, like you said, and the public health establishment just turned on a dime with such such alacrity and and speed that it just almost made your eyes water. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's frankly enraging. I mean, thankfully, I mean, I didn't have any deaths in my family, but I know lots of people who, who had loved ones who died. Who, and who you're, you're, a ground, you're at ground zero in New York City for American infection. Yeah, yeah. so I, people who, who died and who couldn't, they, they were told they couldn't have funerals of more than whatever, five, ten people. Who People who, you know, they, we, we weren't allowed to take our children to the park, which I think, as you know, the studies show that the likelihood of, of out, you know, outdoor transmission is very low. Mm -hmm. So and, and, and children are very, 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 so I'm a minuscule risk at the virus. But we nevertheless, we complied and imposed these psychological costs on our children. 
you name it, uh, uh, you know, not being able to visit patients who are dying and so on and so forth. And then the, and then the protests happen and the public health establishment, 1,200 epidemiologists and others signed a letter saying, you know, we, we encourage people to go out because white supremacy and racism, you know, are lethal pandemics. And then they explicitly addressed those other protests of people in Michigan and elsewhere who had called for reopening and said, but those protests we don't support because that's actually against public health and rooted in white nationalism, which is such a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> you know what it made and, me think of? The fact, the very, the very scientific fact that attendance at regular church service, religiosity, a life of community prayer is protective of your physical health. Americans, any, anybody lives longer the more they are, are religious in their attitude. Yes, well, and, and yet they shut us down immediately. Uh, of course. And, and what I joked about this, because the, the contrast between how they reacted to the reopen protest and how they reacted to the Black Lives protest is, I guess science has found that the virus can discriminate and see what your cause is. If you're a religious person <laughs> and you want to... Uh, uh, you know, protest for opening up mass, or if you're a conservative who wants to get the economy going, the virus can detect that and it will attack your gathering. But you if know, you're a Black Lives activist, apparently science has found that the virus detects that and it won't target your gathering for transmission. Now, some of these public health experts, some of these government officials that have promoted the protests and not reacted uh, when, when things <laughs> got really ugly with the rioting and the looting mm -hmm. and the violence, some of these people are true believers, I, I assume. These are true believers that really feel so strongly the, the sense, they really feel so strongly that America is such a terrible failed nation from its inception that revolution has to happen. And, and you know, that's probably what they believe. But I think many other people are simply bowing to the... To the, to the very sad fact that it takes a tremendous amount of courage to mm -hmm. stand in the way of, of these mobs um, and these mm -hmm. protesters. So that brings me to your courage pledge, which mm -hmm. I want you to tell us about because I've taken the pledge. Yeah, so uh, look, I was very worried by precisely the phenomenon you described of uh, a, the, a left that not just in the past few weeks or months, but over the course of... Uh, I think a much longer period has been radicalizing with truly at an astonishing and terrifying pace and that will begin to demand obeisance from ordinary Americans. It's not enough just to have you not, for example, uh, if you have a different position than they do on the root causes of uh, police violence and um, uh, issues like that. It's not enough that you, you not voice your disagreement. They want you to actively, actively make gestures of obeisance. Now, mm -hmm. you know, if, if someone voluntarily, for example, wants to put a black square in their Facebook avatar or in their Twitter avatar as a mark of solidarity with what happened to George Floyd, I have no problem with that. And actually, the first pledge, the first precept of the pledge is, I believe in the inherent dignity of all human beings. But I came up with a Courage Pledge because I'm worried that uh, you'll start to see com private companies like HR managers, I'm seeing this, I'm getting reports of this, saying to XYZ employee, you know, you didn't say anything about uh, black lives and so your silence 
could be read, you know, as complicity with white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So, and, and so you begin to threaten people at risk of their jobs, their livelihoods, their social standing. Um, if you criticize riots as riots, they'll say you, calling them riots might itself be a kind of ex- expression of racism, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, actually, it actually is an insult to, to people of color. It suggests that they don't have moral agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I came up with a pledge where it says, look, I believe in the inherent dignity of all people, but I... I will not um, make various symbolic gestures if I don't believe in the message. I won't denounce my friend. I, I'm not ashamed of the American flag. Uh, I think it's appalling that Drew Brees was forced to was, was forced into this kind of Maoist struggle session mm-hmm. with self-criticism and so forth. And unfortunately, he went along with it. I don't know, for whatever reason, his publicist or whoever told him you have to just to make this go away. All for just standing up for the American flag. So I think we need something like this. In the long term, we need some more, a deeper political solution. Because a lot of the repression that happens now happens, it, it takes place it comes from private actors, from employers, from social media platforms, against whom there is no First Amendment kind of constitutional defense. So conservatives are used to fighting off you know, unjust actions from the government or violations of rights from the government. They're not so used at dealing with it when it's private actors, companies, employers, private colleges doing it, where there really isn't a... a a constitutional course of action. It all happens within a matter of hours. You said something, you lost your job, you lost your social standing, and you're sort of personally canceled. Now, people like you and I have a platform and we can withstand it, but a lot of ordinary Americans, what they'll do is just, they'll just self-censor. And then we'll have it, and, and that will empower the bullies further. And these companies and corporations will just go along because it's the cool thing, or really because some of their managers have the same kind of leftist agenda. So it's very important for now, while we work on the political solution, in the meanwhile, to kind of create a firewall of courage and solidarity. Again, this is not about being inflammatory. It's not about being obnoxious online and saying whatever you want. But, and in fact, it's rooted in the idea of, 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 of human dignity and reason. But at the same time, no, we're not, we're not, I'm not going to do something that I don't believe in. I'm not going to denounce my friend. I'm not ashamed of the flag. I'm not ashamed of, of the cross. And so that's the idea. And I hope people will take it. You can find it on Twitter anywhere. You just type in hashtag courage pledge. Cuban Americans like me are natural courage pledge takers because of our history and our experience. Mm-hmm. And you have a line in your courage pledge that says, I will not hang that sign on my office door. And it reminded me very vividly of two or three years ago, the, the winner of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty annual prize was mm-hmm. Armando Valladares, a Cuban, who spent, I don't remember, it was 22 or 23 years in jail in a, mm. in a fetid uh, Cuban dungeon Pres- jail. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not <laughs> this is not your nice federal prison with with exercise mm-hmm. hours. Uh, he spent years there, and he described the reason why in his speech. He said he would not put a sign on his desk at work where he worked for a mm-hmm. private company uh, that he supported the revolution. So I thought, mm-hmm. if you know, if, a, if, if one good man can spend twenty two years in jail, then I can also um, withstand some pressure. 
take, I can withstand some pressure. But then my husband told me yesterday, he pointed out, he showed me a picture. He goes, this man's wife was online and said something people didn't like, and he lost his job. So Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, an LA Galaxy um, soccer player, I think is what you're talking about. Exactly. So he told me, you better stand down right now. <laughs> You know, there's um, there's a wonderful essay. Speaking of of uh, communist repression and resistance, there's a wonderful essay by Václav Havel, the the Czech, the great Czech writer and dissident. Um, I mean, he he develops this idea of the the green grocer in a communist country. Mm-hmm. This was toward the end of the Soviet Union. The regime was kind of already it felt itself to be discredited. No one took it too seriously, but the repressive mechanisms were still in place. And um, he Havel discusses the case of a green grocer, a grocery store owner who is required to put up a sign on his wall that says workers of the world unite, you know, from 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 the mm-hmm. Communist Manifesto. And the, the funny thing is, you know, the regime doesn't itself believe in the slogan anymore. You know, it's one of these decrepit communist regimes where everyone knows it's not like a revolutionary regime anymore. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the regime knows no one believes in the slogan either. Nevertheless, you have to put up the sign just so they will leave you alone. And that's called, I mean, Havel calls that not living in truth. Yes. And what, he, mm-hmm. and what he's calling for is don't do that gesture. Don't, don't, don't live the lie. Or, or Alexander Zolzhenitsyn, another great kind of anti-communist dissident, although um, Russian rather than Czech, as you know, his famous line, live not by lies. I think we need, you know, examples and inspiration like that to, um, as, as people of faith, as people of conscience, to withstand the pressures that are coming. But also, on the other hand, we also need to push for political solutions. And I think um, we need to move beyond some of the libertarian dogmas in the conservative movement that says, well, if a private company does it, it's just, it's right. So because we have such a privatized culture and, and public square, if you, if you don't fight for these principles where it really matters in a digital public square that's owned by private corporations or in the HR office in a private company, then uh, you will effectively, in the name of rights, you will lose rights. In the name of autonomy, you'll actually lose autonomy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. This is Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we're talking to Sorab Amari. He is the New York Post op-ed editor and also well-known author of the book From Fire by Water. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we'll be right back. Conversations with Consequences. This is Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we're talking to Sorab Amari. He is the New York Post op-ed editor and also well-known author of the book From Fire by Water. 
think uh, conservatives are depending too much on the liberal state, on sort of classic liberalism and uh, to, to get us through this because of all the, you know, the checks and balances in, the, in liberalism, right? There's the best ideas yeah. will win out in the end. You have a quote, you, you tweeted maybe this morning, liberalism is communism's twin, both children of a mad enlightenment. That was from the good call. Yeah, from the Gutko, who's a, who's a Polish anti-communist dissident now. He's actually a, a statesman in Poland, a member of the European Parliament and a professor. Look, I, I, I got to say that in 2016-17, I, I, when I first encountered this idea that, that liberalism is in some ways a less evil twin, maybe, but still sh a, shares a kinship with communism, I, I revolted against it because obviously... Liberal state, modern liberal states do not run gulags. They mm -hmm. don't run killing fields in sure. Cambodia and so forth. Nevertheless, I now have come to increasingly share the view that both of them are rooted in an enlightenment ideal of the human being as basically good and therefore whatever human beings do is bound to be good and, and, and the goal of political program is to just liberate the human being from traditional restraints a kind uh, of political invisible hand right eventually the good will rise to the top sure and and so that means now for, for the marxist typically it's collective liberation for the liberal it's individual liberation but nevertheless they they share this premise of of shedding the bonds of of tradition of history certainly of of, a, of an absolute moral law if you go along with them on the other side you'll find various kinds of uh repression the communist kind is very obvious right like mm -hmm. like i said killing fields and gulags and so forth but on the liberal side it's it's an it's a more subtle kind of repression But nevertheless, it happens. So, for example, this is my favorite example of this, where the liberal demand starts with autonomy for transgender people to change their sex. Mm -hmm. right? Just let them well, do it. As though that's possible. <laughs> as, though, as, though that's, as though that's like biologically, metaphysically, or whatever you want to call it, it's <laughs> possible. But let's assume that. Okay, it starts with just the demand to let them do that. It's not enough. It never is enough. But then because they'll say, look, for me to be fully autonomous, it's not enough that you allow me to change my name and do the surgery and so forth. You have to recognize that I was never so Rob. I was always Sabrina. <laughs> right. This is my fullest sort of coming to my true self. And there was no so Rob ever. And to even remind me of my old name is a repressive act. And so therefore... You know, we're going to cancel people who use the old dead name or or remind or even speak in the language of a man who identifies as a woman rather than what the new dog dogma is, which is that a trans woman is a woman and a trans man is a man. So why do they find a little healthy opposition so devastating? Well, because I mean, first of all, because it, we don't want to get into the whole transgender issue, but it all rests on. No, in general. On, If the goal is to maximize autonomy and self-fulfillment in every place, then your opposition suggests moral a disapproval. It suggests a, a limit, a moral disapproval. A moral limit. Mm -hmm. if, if I want to have this experiment in living, turn my life, both my individual life and my political community, into experiments in ever wilder kind of social, sexual and so forth experiments, then... I want moral approval for it. I'm still a human being. I want, I want moral approval for the crazy things that I'm doing. And so for you to remind me of a limit 
of the limits of biology, of the, of, of the limits of the moral law and so forth, is extremely uncomfortable. And I want to just get rid of you out of the public square. Mm-hmm. Because you remind me that I'm not, in fact, Sabrina. You and I, Sorab, we both came to the United States around the same age. I came from Mexico at, at 12, and you came from Iran at, at 13. And uh, this other thing that's circulating around, this other madness, which is defunding the police. When I was growing up in, in a third world country, the police was essentially defunded. There were very few police, and their income came from bribes. So when somebody would pull you over for a routine traffic stop, you weren't given a fine. What ensued was a negotiation as to how high the bribe would be, right? Mm-hmm. To be let go. Um, Law enforcement was an entrepreneurial activity. Exactly. So as, as you go, as you went up the social ladder, you had more and more protection because you could afford to pay for it. You could afford to live behind walls, and you would have mm-hmm. you know pieces of cut glass on top. If you were even up middle class you would have a man living in your house that you paid and was armed this was mexico Mm -hmm. everybody was armed so when i hear the word defund the police what i'm thinking is okay this is a recipe for absolute insanity disorder lawlessness and the people who suffer are the poor because they can't afford to live in enclaves and and hire armed guards i mean first of all let's talk about we had a great op-ed today in in new york post by heather mcdonald who pointed out that not denying there are, there have been interactions between police and communities of color that are unjust and the police have acted wrongly. Everyone can't deny that it happens and it should be addressed. You know, there are sensible reforms to be done, but since 1990 in New York city, when we had more active policing, community policing, broken windows, policing murders have gone dramatically down. There used to be a time, as you know, where there were 20,000 murders a year in New York, something like that. I, right? think, I, I think I was going to college there at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and, but, and, and if you rode the subway, chances are you would get mugged. Yeah. And, but since 1990 or so, uh, let's say 1992, that rate has gone dramatically down. And that means thousands of black lives saved by law enforcement. I'm not suggesting that any calls for reform are wrong, but if you talk about defunding the police or rendering it completely toothless, as you said, you know, social workers or whoever they propose to replace the police can't, they can't confront gangs, they can't confront drug dealers, they Mm -hmm. can't confront pimps and murderers and what have you. Traffickers Uh, of children. Precisely. And so, and you'll see, I mean, the urban cores, the people who can afford to leave will leave. And the urban cores, people of working class people, communities of color, will be left. The only people who will be able to withstand living in the cities will be the defenseless, who have no one to to turn to, and then the uber-rich, who can hire their own private security and layers and layers of where they never have to interact with anything dangerous. And I I have to mention this. I mean, I have friends who live in Los Angeles, utterly wealthy, cream of the 1%, Mm -hmm. and they're talking about defunding the police. As, as you just said with Mexico, people like that won't pay the price of defunding or no. abolishing the police. They can, they, the people I'm talking about could hire a private army, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a small militia. It's only the middle class, the working class people of color who pay for this kind of folly. And law enforcement cannot become a luxury that some are able to afford and the rest are just have to sort of see what they can get out of the system because the police are so, they're so hands are so tight that they can't do their jobs or you know they're spread so thin that disorder reigns all this stuff 
like you and I know because we come from parts of the world that have this Lebanon we don't want to become Lebanon where mm -hmm. everyone just has his own private militia that's not a that's not a civil society it's not and and it's the the injustice towards the poor is tremendous I'm 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 really surprised I guess I shouldn't be surprised at how the lack of logic of all this is being accepted by so many people who we call educated right college educated people but I shouldn't yeah. be surprised because having already put Two, three of my, well, I'm halfway through my third child through college. Mm -hmm. Their educations, two of them have gone to Ivy League schools, especially mm -hmm. those. Another one went to a state school, which was much more sane. But the the education, they're 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 just swimming in a bath of Marxist ideology. I have a son at the University of Pennsylvania whose Spanish class he took in a very advanced Spanish class, the Spanish writing and literature because he's fluent. He's fluent. The teacher from Spain, everything she had them read and write about was simply a socialist slash communist commentary on some injustice, uh, perceived injustice in the world. So now we say, okay, so why are these kids falling? Why are these young people falling for these communist ideologies? We've organized it this way. We've somehow allowed our universities to become hostages of the hard left. I, mean, I, I will tell you, I um, go on these panels and I, and I used to point out, you know, as recently as six months ago, it would say, okay, you're talking about rising repression coming from liberals what are you talking about that's where is that happening and i used to say <laughs> look at i would say look at college campuses that's where this stuff is playing out most intensely my interlocutors would say oh okay but that's college they're you know, silly they, kids yeah they're silly kids and so forth now we live in their world now we're living a big college campus writ large and all the deans are just as pusillanimous and scared of radicals as the actual deans at these universities are, meaning the politicians are acting like the deans and the, they're scared. Sure. And college mattered. What happens at the institutions that shape elite opinion and the elite mind, of course it matters because then it, they shape the elites. So I find it very ironic and sad that, you know, I had so many debates where I would say, look to what's happening in colleges and even some conservatives would tell me yeah okay but it's it's the nutty university yeah when they cares. grow up and they go out and find a job and, and find out that, that they've got to toe the about line it. they'll understand yeah. that economy is real and you have to <laughs> yeah. no no they can they can impose reality on us <laughs> so you have besides your courage pledge you also suggested that we could take matters into our own hands and take action and we could mobilize and so you had some counter proposals that you mentioned so, for instance, defund identity slash gender slash grievance studies at public universities. I thought that was a great idea because it seems that another problem we're having with our young people is that they're not actually learning anything in college except <laughs> except these ideologies, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, and look, uh, Hungary has done this where they're decertifying more or less, let's say, gender grievance whatever body shame studies this sort of stuff and, and i think it, it offends a certain liberal sensibility they're like oh, the state is telling you know well yeah the state has a role in saying in defining and, and protecting minds yeah, from protecting students protecting young minds from garbage you mm -hmm. know from stuff that you know okay this stuff is not only against set aside genesis and genesis 127 and and uh, all of it it's all, as you know, biologically, it's nonsense, mm -hmm. right? Of course. So why should why shouldn't the state protect young minds from the idea, the absurd idea that a man can become a woman? 
you have another counter proposal I like abolish divorce and this goes straight to the matter in another sense which is the destruction of the family right I mean when we yeah. see people young men especially of any race of course of any ethnicity rioting in the streets and and robbing and looting and, and, and indulging in violent escapades we can assume pretty easily that they don't have a strong father figure at home and the dissolution of the family is leading directly in my opinion maybe yours is leading directly to these states of disorder what is the purpose of marriage it's uh, that's been completely distorted and that's this is a generational mistake it's not something that happened recently to think of marriage as just the sort of contract of convenience it lasts for just so long as I'm attracted to my partner. But if mm -hmm. I'm attracted to someone, well, bye-bye. You know, let's see what happens to the kids. You know, we have a country where half of marriage is, you know, in the divorce now or something like that, nearly half. Of course, when did we think that it wasn't going to have all sorts of social ramifications of, mm -hmm. of young men going up in, in fatherless homes on the lower end of the social ladder with other men flitting in and out of their households? Mm -hmm who aren't married to their mothers and may be abusive and so forth. What, where is the ground of stability, of, of solidity that a young man needs to find his confidence uh, and a, a loving authority that forms his conscience? All those things that we think of as a sort of true role of, of a nurturing father. My, my experience, Rob, has been that my sons stopped listening to me around the age of 11. And, and I don't mean they stop, they cease loving me. They, they don't hear me anymore. They literally can't hear me. <laughs> when they turn yeah. 11. <laughs> I think so when I, when I want I something done... I look back to my own experience, I think that's kind of true. <laughs> when I want something done, I'm like those old-fashioned ladies in, in the black and white shows. I say, you wait till your father comes home. He's going to set you straight. <laughs> and I'm a, I'm a strong professional woman. You know, another issue I wanted to bring up with you is the phrase, Black Lives Matter. The phrase itself is obviously true. Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. Black lives in the womb matter, for instance. But too many black lives, huge percentage of black lives are ended before they even, before the baby takes the first breath. But all lives matter. The phrase and the organization, they're connected in people's minds. But the organization of black lives matter is, is a terrible Marxist anti-family organization. How can we, as good people, defend ourselves, defend the, our country against the organization without denying the fact in any way, shape or form that black lives matter? Look, I may be surprised to hear me say this, but I think that, that the rest of us who aren't incendiary radicals need to acknowledge and embrace that, that there are grievances in the African-American community. Totally. Um, many of them are historic ones. But I always say, you know, it, it's not shocking, for example, to me, if someone uh, or people were were enslaved for, you know, let's say 250 years, and then subject to de jure discrimination and apartheid for another 100 years. It's not crazy to me, to me to, for that person to say, hey, I need extra help. Mm -hmm. I need support. And, and, and I need that kind of collective just, justice. Co there are collective claims for justice. I've never been, uh, considered myself sympathetic to conservatives to say, well, in 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act. Okay, done. Well, mm -hmm. you don't have any grievances anymore. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. There we go. Of course, that you know, pe people have, there are things such as collective memory. There are anxieties that are inscribed into 
into people's souls by what their ancestors have suffered. I really believe this. Oh, I believe it so, too. Yes. And so I think we need to we say how can how can we help the black community overcome those? And I'm willing to have who who am I? But I think I, I'm beginning to see you know lawmakers, including Republican lawmakers, I'm like Marco Rubio saying let's 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 address how how can we help? I'm open to all of that, um, and I think that would in some ways disempower the actual group which stands for as you said they, they for example say we want we, we oppose the nuclear family mm. you know it's just a hodgepodge of hard left type and and there's nothing and there's nothing on their website or in their manners that suggests that they are looking for reconciliation and hope and and moving forward together which in the end it's something that all of us need right we have to we have to strive for reconciliation for example when i see some of the gestures if they're they're authentic and you see like a police officer marching alongside you know his own community black people from his own community in a way to express horror at what happened to george floyd i don't think conservatives should say oh look at that he's you know he's uh capitulating or, or whatever no that's that's a healthy that's that's a healthy thing to do uh, because we were all horrified by what happened to George Floyd. And the goal should be reconciliation. And I think the politician or movement or figure who can, who can strive for reconciliation without, without empowering uh, radicals who don't want reconciliation will be the kind of leader who will thrive out of this crisis. Well, Sarab, I hope that this leader um, exists and he's, Emerges. Just, <laughs> and he's just waiting to take charge of the world stage because we really need him. And thank you, Sarab, uh, for pleasure. giving Thanks me for so much me. of your time. Oh, um, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us tomorrow on Corpus Christi. If there's ever a year in which we need a feast celebrating the body and blood of the Lord, it's this year. So many faithful have gone without the Eucharist for months. Still here in New York, faithful can't attend either Sunday or daily Mass. We've tried the best that we can with virtual masses and spiritual communions, but obviously it's not the same as the real thing. One of the goods that have come from this pandemic has been that many now are hungering more for the Eucharist, for the Mass, than they ever have. That hunger justifies putting up with the many inconveniences of going to Mass with masks on, sitting in only designated areas rather than the places we love to sit, constantly sanitizing hands and pews and the rest. But that hunger should justify doing almost anything in order to receive the Lord. There's a beautiful phrase in the sequence before the gospel for the Solemnity of Corpus Christi in which St. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote these words for the first feast of Corpus Christi in 1264, says, quantum potes tantum aude, a Latin expression that means dare to do all you can, go overboard with love, and this is a year in particular in which we need to. In most places, we won't be able to have Corpus Christi processions or lengthy periods of communal adoration of the Blessed Sacrament of 40-hour devotion. But perhaps we can do the same thing most of us have been doing throughout the pandemic. Use social media, phone calls, and letters to spread the love of the Lord in the Holy Eucharist. 
I'd like to ask you to think about posting something on your Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram account about the Eucharist today and how grateful you are for that incredible gift. The reason is because nothing we can do is possibly adequate to that gift. In the consequential conversation in the Gospel today, Jesus' disciples, as well as critics, grumble after he tells them that he's the living bread that came down from heaven, and that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live forever. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They ask aloud. Jesus doubles down. Unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Just as the Father was life sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. They go on to say, this teaching is hard, who can endure it? And many of the disciples, those who had been with Jesus for two years by this point, left. They were right in saying that this is a very hard teaching. On the surface, it sounds like cannibalism. Jews couldn't even touch blood without ritually becoming impure. And Jesus was telling them that they needed to drink his blood. Sometimes I think the reason why some Catholics, like many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, don't find this teaching hard is because we basically think Jesus is talking symbolically, that he's not really talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, but he is. He stresses his flesh is real food and his blood true drink. We need to approach this reality with faith, this difficult reality with trust in the Lord. We see how the faithful ones did. After many of the disciples had left, Jesus turned to the twelve and asked if they too wanted to leave. It was at that point that St. John tells us that Jesus knew the one who would betray him because Judas didn't accept the reality of the Eucharist. He just faked it on the outside. But while everybody else was silent, Peter, doubtless moved by the same grace of God the Father who had helped him to cry out that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, earlier. In this situation, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, we have no idea how you're going to be able to give us your flesh to eat and your blood to drink. But here's what we do know. We believe in you. And because we believe in you, we believe in what you say. Those words of Jesus would only make sense exactly a year later, the next Passover, when during the Last Supper, Jesus would take bread and totally change it into his body, and take wine and totally change it to his blood, and say, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is the chalice of my blood. St. Thomas Aquinas, again for that first Corpus Christi, in his beautiful hymn, Adorate Devote, for the breviary, gave us the essential principle of faith. In Latin he said, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius, niloc verbo veritatis verius. I believe whatever the Son of God has said, for nothing is truer than the word of truth. This teaching is hard, but that's what's at the origin of this feast, when a Czech priest named Father Peter, who had basically lost faith in the reality of the real presence, made a walking pilgrimage all the way down to Rome to beg at the tomb of his predecessor, the one who had said, Lord, to whom should we go, St. Peter, for the grace to believe in Christ in the Eucharist. And after 40 days of praying there, it seemed that his prayer wasn't answered. And so he started to walk north, home, surrounded by a bunch of other pilgrims so that they wouldn't be ambushed by bandits. And on Sunday, some of them, knowing that a priest was in their midst, asked him if he would kindly celebrate Mass for them at a church they found on the way. And he consented. Again, 
questioning not only the faith in the Eucharist, but now after his prayer seemingly wasn't heard, his faith in general. But at the Lamb of God, when the priest takes the host in his hands and breaks it in two, the host began to bleed profusely all over his hands, all over the corporal of that altar, and down. Everybody shrieked. The pastor of the parish, St. Christina Bolsena, came wondering what the commotion was about. And Peter, the priest, told him. They took it to Pope Urban IV, who was in Orvieto, a short distance away, to tell him about the miracle. And that's where Corpus Christi came from in 1263. Because everybody knows bread doesn't bleed. You can still see that corporal if you go to Orvieto. It's housed in a beautiful church built above it. So sometimes we can have challenges in our faith. Sometimes we can say this teaching is too good to be true. But we're called to believe it. Because we believe whatever Jesus said and try to base our life on what he says. But we have to ask these tough questions. Do we really ground our life on the reality of Jesus in the Eucharist? Do we really believe in it? Do our choices show it? I always say to people, if the Pope were coming to town, we would all try to meet him because we would do that as the successor of St. Peter. But what about Jesus? Do we really make that time to go meet Jesus, to spend time with him in prayerful adoration, to receive him as often as we can? When I first had the light bulb go off when I was a freshman in college in 1988, that it was really Jesus on the altar. I never disbelieved it. It just didn't take real root in me up until that point. When I recognized it was truly Jesus, I asked myself, is there anything more important I can be doing on a Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday than receiving Jesus inside? And I said, no. And from that point forward, in September of 1988 until today, I've never once gone without Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. That's one of the reasons why I think I am a priest and am preaching to you now. Some of us will not be able to go to daily Mass every day because of other responsibilities that we have, but every Christian who really believes in Jesus in the Eucharist and loves Jesus in the Eucharist should at least hunger to as often as we can, dare to do all we can. As we on this Corpus Christi thank God for this incredible gift, as we pray spiritual communions to receive him like Mary and the saints, as we try to make time for him in adoration and come to Mass with renewed fervor as often as possible, let's make a commitment to try to share this love contagiously with others so that they might come with us to receive this greatest gift ever and the foretaste of eternal life. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 